The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Hey, what's up, guys? Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. Today we have episode 68. At the end of the episode, we will have chapter 16 of Ain't No Messiah. It's a shorter chapter, and I missed last week on the podcast, so I am going to throw in a free short story from Untold Mayhem. Uh, the story that we will be playing is Results Guaranteed, narrated by J. Ben Markson. Uh, this story, I believe, I wrote probably early 2000. I think I was working either in the prisons in Vegas or, well, outside of Vegas, or at the Juvenile Probation Center. Uh, it's been rewritten a couple times. It's on the shorter side. I never really cared for it that much before, but now I enjoy it. Uh, I think the narrator did a really good job. Let's hear the story first, and then we'll talk about short stories. Uh, I've been messing around with that a lot this week. All right, guys, here it is. This is off of Untold Mayhem. Oh, and before I forget, um, all my audiobooks right now are on Super Sale through Findaway, uh, Chirp. So you go to Chirp Audiobooks or on Apple Books. I believe all of them are at least half price. Uh, I think the majority of them are th- either $3.99 or $4.99. So if you, want any, if you know anyone that likes screwed up horror or sci-fi or whatever... Um, or even Unlocking the Cage, which is out, uh, send them my way. All right, let's do it. Here is Results Guaranteed. Results Guaranteed. The chemistry lab was empty. Friday classes canceled, thanks to the memorial service for Ted and the rest of the guys. Peter locked the door set the half-empty energy drink on his desk, and powered up his outdated computer, which was nothing like the new models they had in the athletic department. Peter kept his desk spotless, everything in its place, all the angles nice and even. The only thing off this morning was the yellow sticky note resting on his mouse pad. Taped to the middle of the paper was a small sewing pin with the professor's chicken scratch circled around it, The pin is mightier than the sword. The professor left weekly challenges for Peter and Suki as a fun way to get his research assistants thinking outside the box. But with two dozen dead students about to be buried, trying to figure out a word puzzle was a hundred rungs down Peter's ladder. Still, Peter's mind couldn't help playing with the words, rearranging them, wondering what the circle meant. He set his brown leather messenger bag on top of the note, out of sight, out of mind. With no need to check emails, Peter inserted his flash drive and opened the hex 80 file. He knew the protocol by heart, but scanning the document lifted his spirits. What had started as a disappointing insecticide now had incredible potential, largely because of the unconventional thinking the professor encouraged. Any scientist would say the results were amazing, but Peter understood they had to be duplicated before he could shop for a buyer. The front section of his upper desk drawer was lined with blue, black, and red pens, with two silver sharpies at the edge. At the back was the box of chemical-resistant rubber gloves, 
size small because Peter hadn't grown much since junior high. Peter slipped on his lab coat, goggles, then the gloves, took a dozen flyers and a nylon rope from his bag. After one last look at the screen, he downed the rest of the blast off and tossed it in the trash can. Here we go. The safety shower took up the far corner of the lab. Peter pulled up a metal stand outside the shower and set the papers on it, strung the rope back and forth across the top of the shower several times. All the supplies were under the counter against the side wall. He filled a tray with 2,000 milliliters of solvent and added the exact amount of each chemical. No need to alter a winning combination. Careful not to spill, Peter brought the tray to the stand with the flyers on it, twelve two-inch-long slits cut into the bottom of each piece. He took the first flyer and lowered it in the solution, held it under for a ten-count before pinning it to the makeshift clothesline, repeating the process eleven more times. Peter peeled off his gloves and tossed them into the chemical waste container, dried his fingers on a paper towel. Usually his hands didn't sweat so much, but he chalked it up to nervousness. So much was riding on this product. The flyers needed fifteen minutes for the last traces of solvent to evaporate. Peter took off his coat and goggles, returned to his computer, and searched for the latest on the deaths. The police still had no clue how a quarter of the university's football team, as well as three other students, mysteriously died during the 18-hour period between Tuesday night and Wednesday afternoon. There were no signs of foul play, but the police were investigating the possibility of poisoning, maybe a certain type of nutritional supplement. When it was pointed out that three non-players also died, police responded that all three were well-built athletic young men who perhaps used the same unknown product. They wouldn't know for sure, until the toxicology reports were back on Monday. Peter closed the article, confident the tests would show absolutely nothing. No poisoned protein bars would be found in their intestines. They wouldn't find the slightest traces of any foreign chemicals. Everything would appear normal. What did come as a surprise to Peter was that the police had failed to come up with any clues. He hadn't expected the campus police to make the connection, but the state investigators should have by now. Thorough searches should have revealed each stiff had a small slip of ripped paper with a telephone number on it, the kind of slip that people tore off the bottom of flyers, slips that promised things too good to be true, like gaining ten pounds of muscle in two weeks. Peter wiped his forehead, jumped in his seat when the door clicked and pushed open. Professor Garville, what are you doing here? Gray-haired Garvel looked so different in jeans and a t-shirt. He closed the door and said, I got an alert that someone was in the lab. I thought you and Suki would be at the service. Peter hadn't realized the lab was monitored, but wasn't concerned. Thought I'd get in some extra work. Garvel checked his watch. You are attending it, aren't you? You can make it if you hurry. Peter prayed Garvel didn't look to his left. Hoping the professor would leave if Peter got emotional, he shook his head. Trying to sound sad, he said, I just can't. I've always struggled with death. 
Garvel walked over, set his hand on Peter's shoulder, his first ever display of affection. Isn't your roommate one of the deceased? Yeah, afraid so. Peter turned off his screen and wiped his forehead, wishing he'd turned on the AC. Ted, great guy. Garvel said, I'm so sorry. He gave Peter's shoulder a squeeze and sat down at Suki's desk, swiveled the chair so it faced Peter. I'm all ears if you care to talk. Figuring Garvel had dealt with his own bullies, Peter said, He wasn't like the other jocks. It's a shame he had to die. The whole thing is just awful. Garvel studied Peter and said, You sure you don't want to go? I can clean up in here. Tell you the truth, I'm not feeling so good. And honestly, half the school is going to be there. No one's going to miss me. You don't look good. Did you go out last night? Peter had a difficult time swallowing his spit. I don't drink. Garvel nodded and got up, walked straight for the safety shower. So what are you working on? Is this the hexicar... Don't touch them! The professor pulled back his hand like it had been slapped, looked at Peter for an explanation. I'm sorry. I just can't mess those up. Garvel turned back to the shower, stepped to the side so he could read the big print at the top of each flyer. Results guaranteed. Peter tried to stand, then thought better of it, afraid he might faint. He shouldn't have had the energy drink on an empty stomach. The professor returned to Suki's chair. Hope those flyers aren't for something you're selling. Peter wanted to say no, but found it difficult to speak and simply shook his head. That's good. A claim like that would be sure to bring lawsuits, not to mention the FDA pounding down your door. A shiver ripped through Peter. He tried to cover it by hugging himself and asking, You cold? Garvel shook his head. Staring in Peter's saucer-sized eyes, he said, No, not like you. I should go. By all means, Garvel said, motioning toward the door. What should I do with your flyers? Peter swallowed a mouthful of spit, his throat making him wince. I'll get them. Twelve's a lot. You really need that many? For a friend. Peter pulled the flash drive and put it in his bag, his fingers and forearms slick with sweat. The info's still on there, Garvel said, pointing at the computer. I'm guessing you forgot all sessions are recorded. Remember, your work is owned by the university. Fuck. That was one calculation Peter had screwed up. He rubbed his eyes, but when he opened them, the professor was back at the shower. Garvel moved his finger as he counted. Twelve slips at the bottom of each flyer. One forty-four. Garvel nodded and almost to himself said, Makes sense you'd want a square. Peter closed and opened his eyes again, disappointed it didn't fix his vision. Everything was blurry, the outer edges too bright. It's a friend's. Garvel mumbled as he read the page. 
He smiled when he finished. Well done, Peter. At least this time you didn't have to lie. I feel really sick, Peter said, laying his head on the desk. Lose unwanted weight fast. Results guaranteed. Garvel sat down on the corner of Peter's desk. Sounding like he really wanted to know, he said, I get why you hated the jocks, but what have you got against fat people? A dull thrum picked up speed in the back of Peter's head. Help. First you've got to tell me if you figured out today's challenge. The messenger bag fell to the ground as Peter fumbled for the sticky piece of paper. He shrieked when the sewing pin pierced his palm. Holding the note an inch from his face, he said, My fingers were wet. Good, good, Garvel said, cheering on his student. Now you're thinking. Peter threw open his drawer, pulled out the box of gloves, Tears ran down his cheeks, his fingers trembling as they examined the gloves for pinpricks. Why? The dictators I'll be offering your formula to will feel safer if I don't have a partner. Plus, it's going to make me a fortune, and I'd rather not share. All right, hopefully you guys enjoyed that short story. Uh, I'll probably put up another one next week. It depends on how long the Ain't No Messiah chapters are. I uh, don't want to bombard you guys with a whole bunch of audio. But, um, so I was talking a little bit about short stories. Uh, I got the idea last week, probably because I wanted to procrastinate and not really work on the pandemic book. Um, so I decided to go through all of my old short stories, go through my list, and see exactly how many are good enough to probably send out and get published. Um, when I first started writing, that's what I was doing. That's all I was doing. I was working on some novels that will never see the light of day. It was just practice. But I also, uh, my focus was on short stories. I loved writing them and also uh, sending them out. So I was sending them out, getting tons of rejections, but I also had a good amount uh, published. And those published ones definitely helped me a lot. Um, in fact, almost all of my published stories have been reworked and put out again in my collections. Uh, so I was going through the numbers. I have 127 completed short stories. Out of those 127, um, I think it was 97 have been published. And mo the majority of those are published in Twist Reunion, Untold Mayhem, 25 Perfect Days. So there's a lot of those. Those other 30 stories... A good amount of them are uh, never going to see a light of day again. Uh, some of them were written for 25 perfect days, but just did not uh, make the final cut, and I don't think are strong enough. I probably won't revisit any of those. Uh, and then I also have quite a few of, uh, let's say, literary stories where nothing bad happens. And to me, that's just such a hard one to deal with. It's like, okay, well, nothing really happens. This is... I don't know. I, I don't get why people read that stuff. Um, I'm not even sure why I wrote it, but to me, they just seem too boring. Um, maybe I'll take a look at those and then re-release them under a different name or something, but for now, I'm just leaving those ones alone. Um, a conversation that was had with uh, 
a friend the other day uh, reminded me, I do have a short story I could probably very easily turn into a good COVID story. Um, it's called The Last Laugh. It's about people on a plane and someone starts coughing. And um, it's been a while since I read it, but it would be very easy to turn it into uh, something to deal with this time and how scared we are of other people, um, how aware we are of other people and ourselves. And so I might take a look at that, but if I do, uh, that won't be until after I finish the pandemic. Um, been making good work on that. I'm on chapter 17 right now, the main story. So the main story is almost completely finished. Um, it still might be another week or two though, and then another couple weeks for the death scene. So taking longer than I had wanted, but no big deal. Um, but going back to the short stories, when I was going through all the ones, so I, I had my whole list. It's a total of, so 127 stories. That equals 328,000 words. So that's how much I've written in short stories. Looking at just novels, which would be Bright Side, um, Try Not to Die, Bright Side, Try Not to Die at Grandma's House, and Messiah. That's only, I think, 260,000, another 70,000 for Beyond Bright Side, which is almost done. So I've written just about as much, um, yeah, so almost exactly at half and half. So half of my work has been short stories, half of them have been novels or novellas. So, uh, kind of all over the place. Uh, I have a feeling that from now on, uh, it's going to lean way more into novels. Uh, short stories, I just don't have as much time. There aren't as many um, old ones that I can fix up and make better. And so, yeah, right now my brain is focused on, I got Pandemic, I got all the Try Not to Dies. I have still need to finish up the Beyond Brightside final edits. And then I'm going to jump into the bridge, uh, part two of Messiah. So, uh, yeah, short stories aren't going to be a big part of it. Um, one thing I'm trying to decide right now is uh, what I'm going to do with the rules. Because um, this week I went ahead, so I made my list of all the short stories that I think were publishable. I went through Duotrope to look for short story markets, and I submitted, I believe, four reprints. Um I did not send off The Rules yet, which is a brand new short story. I've been considering it, but it might also be a little bit more fun just to put out on my own as just a free story for fans. And if people like it, maybe it'll be in a whatever next collection I put out. Um, so I think I'm probably going to do that with The Rules and I'll just use um, keep submitting reprints for uh, all these other markets. So not completely sure on that, but that's kind of what I'm feeling. Um, there was one short story that I deleted from my computer. I don't do that very often unless the story is terrible. Um, but this is a story I realized, you know what? I don't want anyone ever knowing I wrote that thing. Um, especially like my kids or something like that. It was just very disturbing, very, uh, very angry piece, very... Um, yeah, it just, and, and for me to say that, you, you know, it's got to be pretty bad. Um, there are a lot of people that write that kind of horror. Um, it's more uh, erotic horror, but that's something I just have no interest in. Um, again, that story was written probably early 2000 when I was a mess. And uh, so I decided just to completely delete that one, got rid of it. So you will never read Woman of My Dreams. Um Oh, my son's looking at me like he wants to read it. You don't, buddy. No.
No. Uh, it, yeah, it's beyond creepy. It's super, super creepy. Um, so yeah, no woman of my dreams, unless I decide to read it for you next week. No, definitely not doing that. Uh, yeah, so that's pretty much it with the short story. So I'm going to, that's what I, how I've been trying to start my mornings. Uh, just looking at, uh, markets for 10, 15 minutes, trying to find the right story to send to them and then sending that off. I'm not spending a lot of time, but at least I feel like I am doing something to further, uh, my reach which is what I'm all about right now. I definitely need to, because I've been so terrible on social media, um, I have no social media presence really. Um, I need to pick that up. I still don't want to, but I'm going to try. Uh, this week was a little bit better than the week before, and I guess if that's what I'm doing every week, then eventually I'll get really good, right? Yeah, that's, that's the thought. Uh, we'll see whether or not that actually happens. Um... I think that's about it, guys. Let's go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, you guys already got the short story results guaranteed off of me. Uh, remember, all the audiobooks are on sale this week on Apple and Chirp. I believe that sale ends on July 4th or the 5th. So you got plenty of time to pick up a couple audiobooks. And uh, yeah, I believe that's it. So check out this chapter chapter 16 of ain't no messiah narrated by rick cheddar and i will be back next week thanks for listening later chapter 16 the New Year's Eve shift had me scheduled from 6 to 6, but the casino cut me loose after I gave my statement. They told me to try and forget about it. It was an accident. They knew it wasn't my fault. It sounded like Lucas had already talked with them. With traffic all fucked up, it took me an hour to make it home. Most of my neighbors in the complex were probably asleep, but that wasn't an option for me. Adrenaline dumps seemed to take longer for me, my body teetering between fight or flight. And I knew when I did finally sleep, I'd have Michael's wide mouth scream haunting my dreams. Besides the great paying job, there was nothing keeping me in Vegas. It took 30 minutes to pack all my stuff and load it into the car. I left behind the emptiness and temptation, the illusion of greatness built on all that despair and made my way west. It was just past eight when I got off the 101 freeway at Laurel Canyon, my phone said there were just four Vincent Granges in the entire county, and only one my age. The address was a corner house with a wooden sign out front, GSG, Granger's Security Group. A shiny black town car sat in the driveway with its trunk up. I parked across the street and watched a guy built like a linebacker in a dark blue suit march out of the house with a black suitcase. I got out of the car, my body aching from the four-hour drive, my ribs feeling like they'd been cracked with a bat from leaning over the railing. The guy didn't notice me crossing the street, his back to me when he slammed the trunk shut. "'Excuse me, are you Vincent?' The guy spun around into a combat stance, but played it off with a smile that cut through his neatly trimmed beard. "'No, I'm Eric. Vince is the boss.' "'Well, at least I got the right place.' "'At unfortunately the wrong time.' A deep voice said from behind me. The guy was my age, my height, decked out in a slick gray suit, black briefcase in hand. 
He looked too much like me not to be him, but I still asked, Vince? Laura said you were on your way seven years ago. What took you so long? The energy drinks had worn off and I was exhausted. Had a hard time coming up with a reason. Distractions. You never thought to call? Didn't know the number. Vince shook his head. Well, maybe it was for the best. So what are you running from? I tensed up without meaning to, worried I'd made the news. I, I left out the part about getting punked out of town and just said, Vegas. Looking like he knew I was hiding something, Vince said, Understood. I wanted to explain I wasn't a coward. I wasn't scared Lucas would beat me in a fight, but I knew how he'd play the game. There'd be vengeance, and it'd be brutal. I'd heard enough stories and saw a couple in the club. Lucas was the new kind of untouchable. No charges ever sticking. But all of that still made me feel like a chicken shit, so I pointed at the sign and asked, What do you do? We specialize in finding missing kids and offer private protection. That's impressive. He held his briefcase out to Eric. Would you mind? Eric set the briefcase on the back seat and waited by the open door. Vince turned to me and said, I'm happy you're here, and I'm glad to finally meet you, but I've got a plane to catch. I stepped aside and asked when he was getting back. Honestly, I have no idea. He looked me over and asked, You got somewhere to stay? Not yet. There's a kitchen and bedroom you're more than welcome to until I get back. Lucas had given me $2,400, more than enough to cover the $500 deposit I'd lose for not giving notice on my apartment. I have money. Relax, man. I didn't say you didn't. If you want to pay rent, go for it. But it's just a number already worked into my business. Sorry, that's really nice of you. We keep two cars in the back, and someone will be in the office during the week from 8 to 5. As long as you can keep it down during those hours, everything will be cool. I promised I'd stay out of the way. Vince looked me dead in the eyes and said, Don't fuck it up, though. I've seen what you can do to a wall. You saw that? That and the other one. You've become quite a mini-celebrity. Vince adjusted his shirt sleeve and said, And one more favor. Give Laura a call. She can use it. I nodded. Can you tell me anything about our dad? Not without sounding crazy. Crazy as calling yourself the Messiah? Close. Tell you what. Help yourself to any of the books in my study. It'll make our next conversation that much better. I'd never read a whole book in my life and didn't plan on starting now, but I said okay. Even though both his hands were free, Vince kept them to himself, didn't shake my hand or clasp my shoulder before walking to the back seat. He slid inside, but kept a hold of the handle, turned toward me. Make yourself at home. When Eric comes back, he'll show you around. Thanks, I really appreciate it. Vince steadied his wolf eyes on me. I'm going to find him. Our dad? I've got a message to pass on from my mother and Laura. Vince was done talking, so Eric closed the door and gave me the firm handshake my own brother wouldn't. He said we'd go over the rules when he returned. I've been living rent-free for over a year. No word from Vince or sign indicating when he was coming back. Cindy, the gray-haired secretary, was in the office every day, and Eric every other, but we rarely crossed paths thanks to me getting off work at six in the morning. The beta blue car wasn't supposed to be in the driveway, but this was the second time Jeremy had done it in the week he'd been with us. I never should have offered him a place to crash, but I felt awful asking how things were when I had bumped into him outside the supermarket. For the first time I'd ever seen, Jeremy burst into tears said his car was doubling as his home since he'd lost his apartment. 
Jeremy slept on an air mattress in the study, but when I opened the door, he was on the recliner, working on his laptop. Beside him, on the TV tray, sat a bottle of Smirnoff and the camera I forbid him to use on me. No photographs, no video, ever. He'd apologized about releasing the motherfucking Messiah video, said he only did it to get back at the assholes who'd roughed him up the second I split. When I asked about the other one with the wall, he said he'd forgotten all about that one. It was just something he had done a long time ago to get views. He'd been disappointed it didn't get very many. The ice tinked in his glass when he held it up. Morning. You just get home. He shook his head. Rolled in at round four. He turned the screen so I could see the skinny blonde's cheek pushing out her lips wrapped around his huge penis. Just doing some editing. I hate to be a dick, but can you move your car? Eric's orders. He huffed and finished his drink, set it, and the laptop on the tray. Sure thing. I almost asked if he was okay to drive, but that wasn't something you ask when the sun's barely rising. Plus, I didn't want him to know. Worse mood since I had more to tell him. I dug the folded papers out of my coveralls and held them out. Here, man. Instead of grabbing the papers, he said, What's that? I've been working at the factory for the last nine months and making good money. An application. Freddy, my manager, said it's a for sure thing if you could even do half the work I can. Jeremy waved me off. I got a job. It felt a little weird being the one in the driver's seat, but I finally felt I was right about something. How was tonight? Fine. Five fabulous hours of filthy butt-fucking. He nodded at the computer. Plus all the basics. And you made how much? A hundred bucks, plus I get a percentage of the net. Which means close to nothing. How are you going to judge me? You're not even paying to stay here. I'm not judging, but I do have the money to rent a place like this if I had to. Vince could come back any day, and then we're both out. Jeremy lowered his eyes. Come on, man. I touched his chest with the papers. You'll make 300 a shift starting out. Not many opportunities like this. Jeremy took it. It's all fucking crumpled. It's not a problem. Like I said, Freddie already gave you a thumbs up. That's just a formality. You start tonight. My normal shift started at 8, but we arrived a half hour early to get Jeremy set up the system and pick up his own pair of blue coveralls. He didn't seem too excited, even when I reminded him they were free. Jeremy only had two rules for the shift. Watch what I was doing. Don't touch a fucking thing. Co-workers like Freddy, a manager who said fuck every other word, made me think Jeremy might fit in. I introduced him to a couple of the guys at shift change and showed him where the break room and bathrooms were located, the cameras up above that kept an eye on every inch of the building. He said it was too fucking cold. I told him he'd get used to it. Twice he leaned against the stack of red barrels and both times I reminded him of Freddy's warning. He said he wasn't doing anything. I said maybe so, but I needed him to stop talking for a minute because I had to pay attention to what I was doing. What I was doing was a direct violation of the OSHA guidelines, but Sanchez and Wernick assured me everyone did it, and Freddy turned a blind eye because it increased productivity. Thanks to the kinds of chemicals we use, regulations require gloves to always be worn, but mine were off so I could unscrew the caps and get a better grip on the 50-pound barrels. I had four on the hand truck and two red stacked next to two blue, another violation no one observed. The machines were spaced a dozen yards from each other, and my job was to stop at every one, top off the hydrochloric acid and water levels. 
a simple job and decent workout the way I stayed strong without hitting the gym. Those are too heavy for me, Jeremy said, shouting so I could hear him over the machinery. I carefully stacked the nearly empty blue barrel, didn't attach the safety strap, another ridiculous rule that sucked up time. You'll get used to it. Same with all the noise. I leaned the hand truck back and pushed forward. Plus, it's not like you need to move four at once. Freddy will say one at a time until you prove yourself. Jeremy nodded, stood beside the barrels when I set them down at the next station. While topping off the acid, I reminded him how important it was not to breathe in, especially if he wasn't wearing the respirator that made it too hard to work. And remember, red barrel, you step in red square. He said he wasn't stupid, and that was the third time I'd told him. I wanted to ask if he was exaggerating, but didn't want to let on I was afraid all my concussions were catching up to me. There was just enough liquid left in the red barrel for one more station. I told him to take it from me. He could do the next one. The barrel's opening was a few inches below Jeremy's nose, but I didn't want him partly because he'd get all defensive and partly because he was the kind of guy that had to learn the hard way. I took the blue barrel and topped off the water. I started telling Jeremy what this machine did, but stopped when I realized he was no longer behind me. Jeremy stood beside the next station the tanks lid off because I was cutting corners. I shouted stop because he was starting to tip over the red barrel but standing on the blue square. He didn't hear, so I dropped my barrel and ran at Jeremy, liquid spilling from his. I heard the reaction and sprang from my feet, shoving Jeremy away just as the acid erupted. I put up my left hand to block my face, the right one out to brace for the collision. I got to my knees and crawled a few feet before everything began to burn. A thousand fire ants eating at my left hand and the right side of my face. I ripped off my goggles and swiped at my cheek with my good hand, but it only made things worse. Someone grabbed my arms and pulled me to the side, told me to stop screaming, it'd be okay. Panicked voices yelled about the wash and more hands were on me, dragging me away from the station, holding my arms so I couldn't tear at my face. Seven days in the hospital, two burnt hands and a face forever disfigured, both butt cheeks sore from the skin grafts. But I was a hero. I'd saved my best friend from certain death, kept him from bruising more than his ego. Jeremy was grateful, brought me home from the hospital in my car because he thought I'd fit better. Only a couple of turns, bottles clinked under my seat. I couldn't check to see what they were if I wanted to, my hands useless bundles of gauze for the next three days. It was a Sunday, a slick red rental car in the driveway. My throat was still a bit raw and it hurt to talk, but I asked if it was someone from the firm. Jeremy shrugged it off and helped me out of the car into my bedroom. He knew the pain medicine was kicking my ass and it had been impossible to get decent sleep in the hospital. Once I was in bed, Jeremy asked if there was anything else I needed. The burn was creeping back in the spots where my skin had been. I said, just my medicine and water if you don't mind. He came back a minute later, handed me a couple purple pain juice. I've been thinking how I could repay you. I waved him off with a cotton ball of a right hand. Don't be ridiculous. He waited for me to finish the medicine and wash it down with the water. You talked to the hospital yet? About what? The bill. I got insurance. You better hope it's pretty good because with most you have to pay like 20% and your sting ain't going to be cheap. Workers' comp will cover it. Jeremy paused. 
Well, I'm not so sure they will. Freddie got fired, and his replacement kept bringing up all the broken regulations, saying shit like gross negligence, willful misconduct, intentional violations. Everything was recorded. I had close to twenty grand saved up in my stash, another 5000 in the bank, but all I wanted to do was close my eyes and dream it all away. I'll manage. Yeah, for sure, but it just doesn't seem right. Your dad is profiting off of this and not you. When will you be able to work again? I'm a quick healer. You honestly don't care if he makes money off of you. You lose everything? You like watching those videos? Jamie had played me over a dozen different ones filmed during the past week, Father praising my name. News stations were picking up the story. The security camera clip the police had confiscated had gone viral. Same with the hospital photo of my face, the red palm print on my cheek that looked like I'd been bitch-slapped by the hand of God. I admitted, I don't like seeing any of it. Then let me run all your social media. You'll be fucking huge. Get all kinds of sponsors. I'm not doing it. Relax, it's not saying you're the Messiah. It'd just be a place for your fans to... I said no. No cameras. Jeremy turned and left the room. I started to ask him to close the door when a figure filled the doorway, my vision too blurry to make out who it was. The figure came closer, revealed himself as the man once known as Father, the Almighty, Charles Campbell. He stood in his crisp black three-piece suit, his hand on my shoulder to keep me in bed. His forehead was a maze of wrinkles, but the gray was all gone, and he looked revitalized, like he'd been zapped with electricity. His smile was that of a proud papa. Last time I'd seen one that big, I'd been impaled by a tree. I asked what he was doing there, but my mouth was all mushy, the words taking too long. He bent down and gave me half a hug, so unexpected I couldn't resist. Oh, Joshua, thank the Lord you're okay. It was hard to breathe with him all over me. I pushed him away with my hands, the sting making it so I could hardly think. Your mother's sick. Your saving grace is a sign. You need to come home. I didn't care if it crushed him and kind of hoped it did. I'm not a believer. He didn't even flinch. Just said that was all right. You rest up. Everything's going to be okay. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.